You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Merry festive break for secular and non-secular reasons. We'd like to do something a little bit different in December. And this year, we've invited listeners to send in their questions. So, huge thanks to everyone who has participated. And we're looking forward to getting stuck into the questions in a minute. This is episode 45 of Sprogcast. I'm Mark Harris. And I'm Karen Hall. And at the time of publication, I'll be on holiday on an island in the sunshine. Meanwhile, we at Sprogcast love being sponsored by Pinter and Martin for all your pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction needs at pinterandmartin.com. Don't forget the Sprogcast code for a discount at the checkout. We're also now collecting sponsorship at patreon.com slash Sprogcast, where you can sign up for badges, T-shirts and other exciting rewards. You can support the show from as little as one US dollar per month, though if you can stretch to two dollars, we'll send you a badge. This month, we want to send a tinselly festive thank you to our newest patrons, Catherine Kelly and Catherine Muldoon, one of my lovely students. Yay, thank you. And just to clear up the question of T-shirts, are we sending T-shirts to everyone who sent us a question? or are we Yeah, sending... we are. Yeah, I thought yeah, so. Yeah, we are. We're going we're to send everyone a T-shirt. It'll be in the new year now, Karen. Yeah, we'll sort out all the admin for that in the new year. Yes, we'll send you a T-shirt. Wear it. Take a picture of yourself. I gave one to my brother. I saw my brother. Um, we had, for, for sad reasons, we had a funeral. So he came over from Hungary where he lives. Um, but nice that I got to see him and I did take him a T-shirt. Now, he's not a T-shirt wearer, so he's never going to wear it. But I felt like he should have one since he designed the logo. I, I was going to say, since all that work he, he put in on the logo, which I love, you know. I was just saying to you, Karen, I know uh, before we came on that uh, my... Uh, kind of method of handling the questions was to not review them. Now, I, I, I know you'll be slightly suspicious that I've been lazy. I haven't. I just wanted to come to the questions fresh today. Right. So let's freshly go to our first question. Ooh. Okay. Let's start with one of our audio clips. We've got two, which is fantastic. So the first one is from Sue Sims. Let's listen. Hey, Sprogcast. It's Sue Sims here. Um, absolutely love your show. Um, I'm a peer supporter and training to be an NCT practitioner currently. My question is regarding the cuts on breastfeeding services locally. Uh, it's so many different towns and cities and the lack of lactation consultants. Is there any way we can make the jobs to support mothers more accessible and more paid so that more women are able who have breastfed themselves to support others? Um, just thought it'd be interesting to see how we can get out to those women that need support in those first early days without being restricted by children's centres and the fact that most people supporting mums are volunteers. So thanks, Susan, for sending that in. Yeah, in many ways, Karen, that's that's one for you to start with, I think. Yeah, I think it probably is. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will have an opinion, but uh, I over to you for that one, Yes, Karen. so shock everybody. Mark's going to have an opinion here. I'm going to have one too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my local situation, I don't know where Sue is, um, but my local situation has seen cuts after cuts after cuts year on year. And I was just talking to a friend of mine who she's um, the local breastfeeding network coordinator and she's just made a 
an A5 leaflet to um, give out to parents that shows all the drop-in groups, which when I first started doing this was absolutely full of breastfeeding network groups. And now it's absolutely full, but it's got all the organisations groups on it. So nice that we're working together and she's listing NCT groups and we're giving out her leaflet. But it just shows that what BFN are offering locally now because of funding cuts is is down by half. So how can we make jobs for breastfeeding supporters more accessible and more paid? That's a really interesting question because a lot of people do volunteer to do this. And we don't want parents to be paying at the point of contact, particularly. At least we no. philosophically, we don't want that. But there is a question over whether some parents would be willing and, and actually quite happy to pay for breastfeeding support. Yeah, those that can afford it, right? Yeah, but... If you pay for breastfeeding support, do you then have a, a different expectation of the outcome? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, a breastfeeding support visit will be an hour or so of sitting, chatting with somebody and, um, you know, offering some help and listening and listening and listening. But you might not necessarily be offering particular advice and you almost certainly don't have the magic wand that fixes the problem instantly because it's such a, a slow burn to do these things. It would be interesting because my, my guess is we've got uh, lactation consultants who uh, listen to us. And, of course, their experience is of having paying customers. Yeah. But you've also got the situation where a lot of lactation consultants are doing things like um, tongue-tie division. And then there is a, a tangible result to the visit, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I We've probably spoken about this before, but... It, there's more tongue tie than I can ever remember. So it seems. Now, is that is that uh, obviously not an evolutionary uh, function because it wouldn't happen in my 25 years experience if it was. So, so were we missing loads when I started as a midwife back I th- in the? I think, uh, I think things just come and go in phases, and social media lends itself to kind of having a, a popular diagnosis of the time and sometimes it's reflux and sometimes it's tongue tie <laughs> those two sort of go around well if this is a popular diagnosis it's, it's leading to unnecessary interventions potentially then isn't it? oh yeah almost certainly and it's leading to interventions where there's a, a, a an issue with positioning and attachment that isn't necessarily getting the attention it needs because the focus is on a tongue tie exactly and the data for what it's worth um, you know, we I, I have certainly anecdotally experienced a lot more people telling me they've had a tongue tie cut, mm. right? A lot more. Can't quantify that. No, and um, of course, so, it could be a certain element of confirmation bias there. Yeah, true. So I, I just wonder whether the national data will will reflect an increase in breastfeeding longevity because of tongue tie cutting. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't we don't really have great national data, so we're not going to be able to answer that question in any scientific or meaningful way. Yeah, back to your your question. Uh, I think the tongue tie thing raises an, an important discussion. You know about whether the widespread increase that we're seeing is necessary or not. Although thinking about it while I'm sat here now, I, I suppose if someone has a their baby's tongue tie cut, um, it becomes a focus. Of attention, so so maybe feeding improves because suddenly there is a reason why feeding weren't working before. Yes, but sometimes the reason it wasn't working before is not the tongue tie. It's, it's, the problem with tongue tie is it, it's complex and it's not 
it doesn't lend itself well to internet diagnosis or parents saying, well, it, I, I think there is, or even, um, dare I say it, sometimes health professionals saying there definitely isn't, um, or it's only a small one or other things that we know to be potentially quite damaging to the breastfeeding relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, even the idea of saying, oh, it's a small one. Well, I, yeah, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of science or data floating around about it. Well, it it's widely recognised that there needs to be a thorough investigation and a, a, a proper sort of, um, um, the word is failing me at the moment, but um, to, to actually properly look at the tongue function, the way the feed is going to to talk to the mother and, and to see a, yeah. a, a much bigger picture than just a kind of looking under the baby's tongue when they're crying type thing. Well, who, who, who does that investigation then? Is you, it... Usually lactation consultants or properly trained midwives. And not paediatricians or anything like that? I imagine the that paediatricians can get that training, but the, or, or it might be um, ENT specialists. Okay. But they, they will be looking at the tongue. I'm not sure what they would do about knowing the, the big picture of the breastfeed itself. Okay. Maybe midwives are, now are receiving more detailed instructions on this because they so, certainly weren't when I was trained. I don't think they are, no, Mark. <laughs> And, you know, I practiced in the community only six or six or so years ago. And uh, then we weren't offered additional training or support in this area. So. Well, no, but I think that's an important thing is that you recognize that you're not you don't have that training and you don't say there is or isn't a tongue tie and how much of it you think there is. And you do say seems to be an issue with feeding here. Would you like, you know, some support from a specialist? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, because it, it wouldn't have even come up. Um, as an issue it didn't when I was in the community uh, and it wouldn't have occurred to me to to suggest that it might be an issue so so Sue, Sue's question though was broader than this wasn't it yeah let's get back to it uh, I, I, I think you see what we're looking at uh, is from a systemic point of view we're not seeing the investment we need uh into the longevity of breastfeeding because there's a myopic view. You know, if we were to take a bigger view as a, uh, a culture and look at the impacts of not breastfeeding in a more long-term way, we would see more investment uh, in breastfeeding support. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, the, the, this whole question depresses me. Sorry, Sue, <laughs> because I don't think yeah. that there's a positive answer to it. And exactly for the reasons that Marcus just said, it's it, it just isn't valued enough to be worth any money to the people, to the policymakers and the budget setters. I mean, that might be because we're not, there, there's a tension between providing a service on a day-to-day -day basis and planning for a future where the, current service on a day-to-day -day basis won't be needed there's it, it, you know it's like the move towards midwifery led units or standalone midwifery led units you, we all know that there's been cost evaluation after cost evaluation that says in the long term this will save a lot of money right mm. the problem is in the short term the service that's currently there has to be provided so while you're transitioning to this long, this solution that will lead to long-term benefits, there's a current crisis financially in providing the service that has to be there. Does it? Does that make sense? Yes, but yeah. that's led upon the huge social and cultural context in which 
breastfeeding is just not valued and there's the the whole um you know that that deep misunderstanding that to value and protect breastfeeding you're then you know making making people feel guilty or making creating discomfort for people who didn't choose to or didn't manage to or whatever yeah it just it makes it so very difficult to to tread the line where you can communicate about this effectively it does and of course i i would say that when i feel guilty about anything whether it's my parenting uh, my overeating and my excessive drinking uh th- th- sometimes i project what is an inner response to my behavior onto other people that are challenging my behavior you know so maybe i've had a, a drink one drink too many and my you know wife will look at me in that way that she does and my knee jerk reaction is you're making me guilty about drinking Yes, and Mark, course, you are guilty about drinking. Yeah, well, the, the, <laughs> the, issue, the issue is, right, the guilt is an inside job. Yeah. But that feels like it's outside. But it takes and, and, such a huge amount of self-awareness to, to get to that place. Yeah, I know it does. I know it does. But yeah, it does frustrate me when um, people might accuse me of some intention around what I've said to them about something, you know, you're making me feel this way. Well, the the truth of of the matter is, from my experience, no one makes me feel a certain way um, emotionally. It's it's always an inside job. Mm. You know, there there might be external influences that trigger the internal response, but it's it's always an inside job, right? Yeah. I think the way forward is not to expect the institutions and our culture to shift and change but is to is to is to pioneer breastfeeding support organizations that are self-sustainable and not dependent on local authority money so so what we need i think are some free creative thinkers who are entrepreneurial that find ways to design projects that are self-sustaining brilliant answer yes mark and there are great examples of that going on yeah and and we need more of that so it's from the bottom up rather than expecting the institutions to change. Yeah, no point. <laughs> yeah, I don't, well, it's going to be a long-term project. Mm. So this brings us really, really nicely to our next question from Vicky White. And she sent this in actually after having listened to episode 15, which was um, our interview with Maureen Minchin. And oh. she said um, when she contacted us that that, interview had made her feel quite unsettled having formula fed both of her children um, and never really realizing what Maureen is saying which is that formula milks can actually be quite damaging to them so she she was touching on what we've just said about whether there should be an effort to make a cultural shift around feeding in the same way that there has been say around other health messages drinking seatbelts smoking and her question is do you think there is a case for having warning labels on formula boxes in the same way that we now have on tobacco products and if so how do you feel this could be achieved without isolating parents who still feel that formula feeding may be the best or only option Wow. My my initial visceral reaction is no to warnings on formula packaging. All right, you. What about me? Um, it's so hard to come down on either side of a line there. I, I think my position on this is that it is not the individual parent's responsibility 
to change the world. And putting the warnings on the packets to me seems like making it their fault. You know, somehow, somehow that's shifting the blame from uh, society's yeah. responsibility to the yeah. parents who were, um, as Vicky says, may feel that their best or only option and they're in a place where they do not have other options they're not yeah. generally you know somebody like vicky where she's used the phrase i ended up formula feeding my children so that sounds like that wasn't her initial plan yeah we know about postnatal depression rates and breastfeeding intentions don't we we know a lot of things about breastfeeding intentions and how things pan out four out of five women start breastfeeding and most of them stop before they plan to and, and a high, high rate of postnatal depression amongst women who intended to breastfeed and then for whatever reason chose not to. Yeah, so that's an, another factor. And actually, it, at the moment, postnatal depression is, is a, a big buzz. It's, it's, it's one of the hot topics that's spoken about and, and government is concerning itself with postnatal depression. But that still isn't channeling the support into infant feeding, which th- there's evidence, as you say, that that would be good. Well, I've worked, I've worked with mother after mother after mother who who seems to be in a grief process yeah. having, made a, having made a feeding choice change. Yes, because of the loss of expectations. Absolutely. Whenever I used to talk on the wards or in community to a woman that was shifting to, to, to formula feeding and a woman would say to me, for all the reasons, we'd given all the support that, that we felt we could, given our resources, and she says, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to give up breastfeeding, right? Mm. And I would always say, it, you're going to shift your feeding choice based on, you know, all the evidence and experience that you, you're currently, you know, experiencing okay, in the but... context of your family and support. So like, for me, it's not about giving up or failing. It's about making a considered choice around feeding okay but i can hear all my students listening going karen karen challenge him on the word choice is it a choice if you don't have a choice well i would say it's always a choice i think where the where the where the issues are are in the context of how deeply unconscious a lot of the influence that society has on us um is but those influences are taking choice away. When people make this decision, choice implies that they have different options and that all those options are equal. And that's not the case for somebody who has used up all, all the possible ideas that she's got and she's used her resources and she's done everything she can she can manage. And now she finds herself using words like give up or ended up formula feeding, which clearly to me imply that this is not a choice. It certainly doesn't feel like one, and 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 even when it does feel like one, I I would argue there is so much unconscious influence. And we're not, I'm not just talking about feeding, but in life generally, there is so much unconscious influence at work that I I wonder whether I ever make a truly conscious informed choice. Exactly, this is so yeah. much more complex than just informed choice, and that's why I think that the labels labeling formula packets to tell parents they're damaging their children is probably not a great way forward no because you know we need labels on mcdonald's packaging uh we need labels on loads of frosted cereals uh we need labels on loads of stuff don't we Mm. so um if we calculate how much money it would cost to label all the boxes 
then we could take that amount of money and put it into protecting breastfeeding. Uh, look, we're, we're still not doing a fabulous job uh, with skin to skin, early, you know, skin to skin as soon as, as, soon as uh, possible after the birth of the baby. Yes, that one small, cheap, effective, yeah. evidence-based intervention would be great. Yeah. I, I, don't get me wrong, the data probably looks great. I think we're getting, what, 86, 88% initiation rate or 80% skin to skin. I, w- I would argue that's probably because we're auditing it and it's becoming something that we're accustomed to ticking a box about. But in, in, in terms of are we effectively uh, uh, designing and implementing a culture where the baby immediately goes to the mother. But I don't think we're doing great on that. No, no, I don't either. And it's, you know, it's, it, it you know, won't sell many tickets at conferences to be to be talking about that and emphasising it. But we're not we're not doing great, are we? No, interesting that if you frame it in terms of discussing the microbiome, then that does get some interest, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sells yeah. tickets at the moment. It does. You know, the, the science on epigenetic Mm-hmm. changes of the of the uh, genome is in its infancy and I think as we've said before it will become an important area of study over time we, we should get someone to talk about epigenetics at some point soon uh, we've done it before haven't we? we did the microbiome once and, yeah uh, but connected epigen- but not identical subjects so yeah uh, but yeah. The, the epigenetics thing specifically I'd be interested in understanding more about I have to admit that I I just don't no no, well, I, I know a little bit, you know, which is probably dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, seriously. Uh, back to um, the question, I, I would say no to warning signs. Uh, I would say yes to, to more aggressive dealing with formula companies mm. because they're still plying their trade on TV. You know, only the other night, I think I saw an advert that says uh, this – follow-on formula, which is just a way of extending the life of the customer, has been informed by 40 years of breastfeeding research. I mean, how do, <laughs> how do, how do they get away with such blatant pre-framing of the argument in such a way that someone is more likely to unconsciously take on the message? Oh, it's clever, isn't it? It's very clever. And I, I think that's probably the place to start. I'll be frank, you know, there's good and there's the best that we can do. You know, we I might argue from an evolutionary point of view, we are mammals because we feed our baby with mammary glands. Therefore, it must be obvious that breastfeeding um, is the way that as a species we've survived this long. You can't argue with that, right? You can't argue with that, but you can't argue with the social context either. No, you can't. But if, if, if a woman... and I'm going to use the word choose for whatever reasons she perceives she is making the choice to shift her changing, uh, sorry, her feeding method. Uh, there should be freedom for her to do that with a completely clear conscience. So we're going to wrap up um, Vicky's question. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vicky. And would you like a birthy one now All right. for you? So um, can you see, have you got the question list there? 
Uh, I'd like to say I have, but I haven't. You haven't. Okay, so I'll read it. Um, this, is, this is a question from Jenny Corcoran, and she says, what brain and hormonal changes do partners or fathers go through during pregnancy, birth, and the early postnatal period? And I'm going to say, Mark, this one's for you. Yeah, and I'm going to say, uh, in the broad sweeping sense, I have no idea. Okay, let's move on. No, I, I don't want to leave it there, uh, be, because, I, uh, see, I argue um, inside the evolutionary model that although the male of the species and the female of the species obviously have the same hormones at work in their body, uh, they just seem to dance in different ways. Now, the evidence on this is, is argued, all right, and I come from the point of view of uh, kind of testing my theory, my hypothesis um, in, in the world. The hormones of the body are the kind of messengers of the body. And the way the hormones dance in the body lead to motor outputs in the body, lead to actual behaviours. Are you with me so far, Karen? Yes. Yeah, so you're saying that there are um, chemical changes that lead to behavioural changes. Yes. And and there there is scope for us to differentiate between, broadly between the male and the females of our species of mammal right so for example in the context of stress it seems that women uh, are craving an oxytocin release in her body that leads to a to a feeling of well-being okay mm-hmm. now the behaviors that gen- seem to generate that shunt of oxytocin are very different to the behaviours that the male of our species, broadly, it's an analogue, not black and white, um, but the male of our species seem to crave a testosterone boost in the context of a stressful situation. And a testosterone boost seems to be generated by a very distinctive set of behaviours. So, so the extrapolation from that is that, that we see, and it's often used as a stereotype, we see a different set of behaviours consistently in the male of the species and the female of the species in the context of relieving stress. So hundreds of times now I've done the exercise where I ask a whole group of women, when you're feeling pissed off or down, what kind of behaviours do, do you pursue? And in hundreds of kind of situations, I get a very consistent set of behaviours. Mm-hmm. All right. I've done the similar uh, exercise in groups of men, uh, probably hundreds of times. When you're stressed, pissed off, what kind of behaviours are you more likely to gravitate towards? Again, a very consistent set of responses that are quite different to the females of the species. OK, so what are the two sets of responses? Well, you, you are... You, Answer the question for me, Karen. When you're feeling pissed off down, what behaviours do you gravitate towards that are more likely to lead to you feeling better? Talking to someone. Yeah. Always comes up. Um, What else? Possibly comfort things that make me feel better. Right. A top of the list often is eating and eating chocolate. I know it sounds like a stereotype and it's sticking in my throat as I say it, but it comes up as number one very often. 
Hmm. I wonder if there's a, a social element to this, but go on. Of course, of course, I think there is a social element. I think that the, when we talk about gender, I think gender is the fruit of social construct. But don't forget, before we had a neocortex and before we could uh, define our experience and talk about our experience, there was no narrative. There was just the experience of a male and a female existing in an ecology and seeking to survive. Okay, but equally, there was no chocolate. Now, what do men do? Well, let me carry on. On that list, um, in all female settings, I often get go for a walk with no destination in mind. I often get some kind of creative activity. I, I often get uh, move the furniture around in the house for no apparent reason. Okay, so I get a, a list of, of items that are very similar. Now, in an all-male group, again, can you guess what comes out as pretty much number one? I'm going to say that you're going for something shouty. No. Uh, take, or take alcohol. Take off. No, alcohol comes up always and on the female list, as it happens. Um, but on the male list, take themselves off somewhere to be on their own, either physically or metaphorically. So they might flick through the channels with no destination in mind. Uh, they might lose themselves in a first person driving or shooting game. All these things sound very stereotypical. But they sound like uh, distractions, um, which was on the female list and um, being on your own, which was on the female list. Yeah, I, I would argue and um, I would say this is tested in my own experience, which is the only place I can test it. Don't hold it as the truth. Uh, I would argue that the differences in behaviours flow from a distinctive dance at a hormonal level. So not because we're socialised to behave and seek comfort in different ways? Oh, I don't think so, because I, I think there is a level of socialization and kind of social construct when it comes to gender yes obviously you know pink for girls and blue for boys and all this kind of stuff i would say there's something at work underneath which is biophysical which predates our ability to talk about this stuff you know it's, it's why in hundreds of cases you know when i've been with men and their part with the partners of women who are in the birthing process in the birth room, what I see are behaviours that are men doing their very best to handle what is effectively an ancient hormonal dance at work in their body, a fight, flight or freeze response, which in days gone by would have been used effectively in kind of guarding and protecting and fending off real threats to the physicality, you know, to the physical safety of their partner. It's quite, it's quite deterministic, isn't it? That we're, we behave in ways that are subject more to our biology than anything else. I don't know whether it's deterministic, but I, I, for me, um, I am a, a, a mammal. I'm an animal. Uh, the vast majority of um, my behaviours flow from deeply embedded unconscious processes um, and the physiological ones must do, because as we're talking now, you know, ancient parts of your brain are making sure you're breathing, making sure your hormones are dancing in the appropriate way to maintain hemiostasis in your body. And you have no conscious control over that or very limited. Mm, interesting, because social conditioning doesn't affect whether I need to breathe or not. Of course not. So Social conditioning is massive. 
and uh, I'm not diminishing it. But and probably the ability to condition societies uh, only has definitely only existed since Homo sapiens developed the ability to invent an idea that didn't exist in the physical world and invest other people in the belief in it like it's the truth. You know, uh, in the book Sapiens by Yeovil, whatever his name is, you know, he, he makes the point that there were six species of humans on the planet at the same time around about 200,000 years ago. And they were all living in small groups, in isolated groups all around the world, not having much of an effect on the ecology. They were just part of the ecological system. Then Homo sapiens developed the ability to talk about his ex her experience, um, to create music, to use symbol, and also developed this ability to create something that didn't exist in the physical environment. As the, and, and invest others in a belief in it like it did. And this led to Homo sapiens being able to develop large social groupings that has ultimately led to dominance. But that ability hasn't superseded all the other instinctive responses to our environments. And I would argue they predate the idea of patriarchy, feminism, religion, nation state, money, time. But there you go. I felt like I was preaching then, Karen. A little. <laughs> you get the point, though. So I can hear so, what you're saying, yes. What does that mean? Um, it means that I still think that, um, you know, for example, what you've said is that the physiological response overrides the social conditioning, but we know that's not true when a woman is birthing in a brightly lit room. Her, her instincts don't override that. There is an important role that uh, our conditioned responses play in terms of how life unfolds. All I'm suggesting is that there is a biological uh, aspect rooted in our evolution as mammals. Now, for some people that will make me an essentialist. Uh, well, then, so be it. Well, that's, if, yeah, that's, that's your position. If, it's okay. To if have that's what it makes me. But the thing I would argue again, very gently, um, it's that these distinctivenesses that are the fruit of our evolutionary development, we can test them in our own experience. We, you know, we can, we can test them. So nothing I'm offering is to be believed or is true, but can be tested. And over the last three to four years in presenting this kind of material to many groups, uh, and the response to the book, um, which has been amazing and still is, people read the material and it resonates in their own experience. Uh, so for me, that's enough, really. Nice one. Nice question. Eh? Yeah, lovely question. And gives us a lot to talk about um, and leaves us saying it's complex. <laughs> of course, of course it is. And, and that's, that's the important point. All Everything I'm saying is an analogue and a sliding scale um, and is, is up for grabs. You know, I've got books on my shelf that agree with this position, books that don't agree. Um, but there you go. Great. Um, shall we move on? Because there's a, a question here that I don't know what it means, but I'm hoping you will. All right. 
And this question comes from Bex and she's on Twitter as at Mrs Mando. And the question just says, hands on or hands poised and why? Oh, God. And this is this relates to the idea that if a midwife puts her hands on the baby's head as the baby is about to crown, that somehow it will reduce perinatal trauma. Right. All right. And there is a study going on, and I can't remember the name of it, uh, where people are randomized into hands on or hands poised. And they're going to look at the data. Uh, I think it's a pseudo RCT to see whether there is any difference between the two. You, you, you getting it, Karen? OK, so um, where do you come down on that? Oh, God. I, I, you know, when I first started as a midwife 24, five years ago, um, you know, I, I would have done what my mentor told me and put pressure on the baby's head as it was coming up and all the rest of it and all the panting and puffing and all of that. After a couple of years, I, I, I recognised that my hands there was inhibiting a woman responding to how she wanted to respond when she was birthing. Uh, and I felt the position that a woman took up and whether her, breathe, whether her breathing was coached, you know, the pushing of the coaching of pushing had more of an influence on perineal trauma than my fingers holding back the force of evolutionary processes at work, you know, at working. Uh, and in my personal data, I saw no difference uh, in terms of second degree and third degree tearing. So you don't think it makes a difference whether you I don't your think, hands off? I don't think it does at all. Um, I had a conversation with uh, Dennis, uh, Dr. Dennis Walsh, and his opinion is very similar to mine. The research uh, design uh, of this research that's currently underway is flawed because the amount of variables that are at play when a woman is birthing is well beyond whether my two fingers is holding back the baby from coming out too far. You know, we have to look about, we have to look into what position is a woman taking? Uh, what kind of preparation has she done uh, prior to birth in terms of um, being able to take up different positions comfortably? Is she, be, is she uh, pushing in an involuntary way? Is her body dictating the process of pushing? Uh, what's her dietary status prior to birth in terms of tissue integrity and all of that? Whether the midwife is a man or a woman? Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, so we've got, there are loads of variables that make looking at two groups of women, hands poised and hands off, is just farcical farcical so so for me just allow the process to unfold and as a midwife all i'm doing is pointing to the source of birthing power and offering maybe some support based on my experience um putting my hands uh, between a woman's legs and pushing on the baby's head to stop it coming out quickly is not something that I could ever believe would uh, make the process, enhance the process in any way at all. There you go, Bex. That is the answer to your question. Well, that's my answer. Yeah. And people will be, you know, I hope there's enough people out there suitably offended by it. Excellent. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Shall we listen to another clip? We've got another 
a second yeah. audio clip. So this one comes in from Sinead McManus. She's one of my uh, students over in Belfast. Hi, Karen and Mark. My question for you guys is, with the ever-increasing social media presence in our lives, it seems to me that parents-to-be are bombarded from all angles with buy this gadget or follow this routine, sort of less focus on trusting their instincts and a real information overload. In your work with parents, how do you go about breaking down the helpful to know from the scaremongering or unnecessary? That's one for you, Karen. Is it? I think that might be for both of us. We both work with parents. I, I know, but I spoke for ages. It's true, you did speak for ages, Mark. Go on, Karen. Yeah, um, and, and it's interesting because you could look at this in, in the terms of thinking about gadgets and devices, sleepy heads and you in the sheep and things to stop your baby having a flat head. And what else is the Mark? Dummies, breastfeeding pillows. Yeah, you can you can buy uh, clear perspex buckets that are, you know, so that you bathe your baby in the same position that they were in the womb. Well, they're not, though, because you don't bathe them head down, do you? Anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, or you could look at I it. Hope, I hope <laughs> that would be very dangerous. I bet someone worse. <laughs> um, the other way of looking at it would be thinking about information, like the, the don't co-sleep message, which is yeah. scaremongering, um, the, the don't drink and how health messages are are conveyed and things like that which um you could go back and listen to Heather Tricky's episode for answers to that I'm thinking about the the bits and pieces and and maybe the books as well things like Gina Ford although I have to say I don't encounter a lot of Gina Ford followers these days no I think she's done I think she's out of fashion now yeah I think I think to a certain extent the books that we like can can feed into the same problem. I was just thinking that myself, that even the books that we say, oh, this is a good book, I'd give this to my sister type books, it's still reliance on a book and it's still trusting an expert rather than your own instincts. I I think potentially not as dangerous as Gina Ford and and co. Quite, as long as the information in there is solid, that's a good start. Yeah, but still pointing maybe in the wrong direction. Hmm. Maybe the question is, how do you encourage that sense of trust and self-confidence and self-efficacy that allows parents to make their own decisions? I, I would. My initial gut response is to simulate a community group or extended family relationships. You know, we live in a society where, you know, the family is contracted into a very small unit you know in the past we would have had extended relationships with other family members and any any activity that encourages the building of social capital if you like Mm. or community relationships is to be encouraged you know millie's work with positive birth movement uh is is starting to do this you know you're 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 meeting with other people in a in a social context to share your lives as people. Well, yeah. Plus, we've got sixty years of NCT already doing that. Yeah, no, I get that. Sorry, I wasn't dismissing NCT. <laughs> you know how I feel about NCT. Yeah, it, 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 encouraging community groups uh, is probably the way to go, where the um, professional isn't considered the oracle for all things 
Absolutely. Yeah, now that's really interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot lately in context of my work where we're we're actually trying very hard not to be the expert at the front of the room and much more to be kind of a a, a quiet facilitator within a group. Yeah. But it, it's very difficult because people pay money and come into a group expecting to be taught by an expert. I, I, when I taught in college many years ago, not having any teaching background, I got very into the work of Carl Rogers on teaching mm. and, and the idea that there isn't a teacher in the room. Yeah. There are co-learners in the room. And, and my role was always, and still is, was to create an environment where learning can occur. Uh, and I am learning in that room. I am a learner. <laughs> Knowledge isn't transferred from one to another. It's constructed inside the experiences of the individuals in the room. Yeah. So an an environment for learning is my role as learner in the room, uh, not to impart absolute wisdom and knowledge because it it doesn't seem to happen that way. I completely feel that with my tutorial group where I'm working with NCT students, but I I find it harder to make that happen in a group with parents because I think the parents' expectation is yeah. not that. And, and last month's episode, looking at the analysis of one born every minute, you know, for me, that was a bit of a light bulb moment. Oh, a lot of people have commented on that or, com- or spoken to me about it. They really enjoyed that. Powerful, because, you know, no discussions around consent and mm. information giving seem to be portrayed in this show, which is watched by millions, which is potentially feeding into that that sense of passivity that you've said you've picked up over the years. Yeah. So it's it's around building the kind of social networks and the trying to bring back the village. And it's also about enabling parents with tools and strategies to make decisions. Yeah. So like your brain analogy, I really like that. And uh, a, bit, a bit embarrassed I didn't know it, but it, it's pretty cool. And, and what we're suggesting in terms of moving back the community hmm. it's not just going to benefit us in the birth world is it it's going to it's going to benefit us as parents as partners as you know in every way yeah. I you know I was only thinking the other day I'm at a point now where I have very few uh, friends male friends uh, any friends locally really and uh, that, that I, I feel a bit impoverished by that oh Mark I'll be your friend yeah, well, thank well, you are my friend. <laughs> the, the point being that, you know, you can't divorce us from our evolutionary heritage. We are a herd animal, Karen. Yeah, and isolation is a, a very typical issue that comes up postnatally. Yeah, and I think we're feeling it more and more and more as a society. Mm. You know, because industrialization has, has led to our being divided. We work in a different place to where we live. I don't. <laughs> well, you, you, I don't. But, you know, we travel out of our communities. Yeah, no, that is true. Them. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I blame capitalism. But anyway, just joking. Right. We've got one last question and I've saved this one to the end. And this comes from Jo Booth on Twitter. Her handle is at Jo Booth 10. And she says, "What what is your favourite knitted or handcrafted antenatal teaching aid? Ah. Do you have one? Well, I don't do much antenatal teaching these days in the classic sense. 
right? But when I way back, I did something called the when there was an EMB, I did the nine nine seven teaching and assessing award, right? Doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> but anyway, I had to. I I, I chose to make a knitted uterus. Aha! Uh-huh. And did you, uh, did you make it yourself? Yes. Well done. I made well. It was easy. I didn't knit it. <laughs> that was I made patronizing, it wasn't it? Sorry. Yeah. Thanks. We can knit too. <laughs> no, you can't. You. you have to go out <laughs> drinking and have long walks. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I made it. I cut a sleeve up. I remember. And uh, it was a very last minute thing, which is my uh, used to be my way of studying anything. But anyway, and uh, it was really effective, to be honest. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Anything, anything that gives people some kind of reference experience for what it is you're talking about can be useful for teaching, can't it? Yeah. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, the idea of uh, pulling a a jumper over your head, you know, pulling neck over your head. Yeah, okay. And I'm bald, so that's great. You can, actually, you know, you that's can actually very see, graphic. Yes, you know, you can see the effacement, and and then eventually I crown. Yeah, that might be slightly too graphic. Sorry. Yeah, so I'd be my knitted uterus. Okay, and are you going to guess what mine is? Uh, it'd be something to do with breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Pr- probably a knitted boob. Or I've got to have knitted over a hundred boobs <laughs> in my time. <laughs> They're a very useful teaching aid. Yeah, and anything that discourages midwives or breastfeeding supporters from putting hands on a woman is a good thing, right? Yeah, and um, I, th- I think people find them funny, and that's relaxing. It's quite nice in a group. They yeah. they have certain expectations, obviously, of an antenatal group. So they're coming in and they're seeing you with your knitted boobs. They know you're going to meet their expectations of your stereotype. And you're always comfortable getting your boobs out. Yes, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can remember when I did when I was pregnant and I did antenatal classes, and the facilitator reached the point where she was going to talk about positioning and attachment and she was wearing a cardigan and as she sort of did her introductory rationale she began to unbutton her cardigan and she was just taking it off as she said the words so the best way to do this is with a demonstration and she turned and picked up the knitted breasts off her desk and came back to us with those and I have no idea whether that was deliberate or not but it was utterly hilarious. That's great performance, right? Oh, I have, yes. She's one of my heroes. That is fantastic. And in a way, you know, the things that, that we come up with uh, do point back to the last questioner. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, you know, for me, when it comes to teaching or, or supporting, anything I can do that points back to the inside-out nature of birthing, parenting, um, anything really actually thinking about it is important it is useful anything that that kind of points to an outside source of uh information and activity it i think is to be discouraged does that make sense Karen? definitely and that's partly why i would also kind of use my own body as a teaching aid now that sounds like it could go Ooh. quite badly but i'm you know Ooh. i'm happy to demonstrate positioning with a doll on my own body i i'm not um weirded out by 
touching my own breast. Now that sounds very bad, but all I mean is just to kind of demonstrate where a baby might be holding a doll or something like that. I'm very comfortable with that and I feel like that hopefully is helpful and doesn't freak people out too much who who aren't coming to it from the same place as me but that that it's easy to show that your body does this stuff yeah no i get it i, I totally get it i'm glad because i don't and, think i articulated that very well no i think that was good i and and of course we're back to this whole thing about uh, in a way about um experience and feelings being an inside job because I, a number of times, you know, I've done couples sessions and spoken about um, uh, female sexual release and birth being one event separated by time and all of that stuff and had feedback uh, that some of the couples felt very uncomfortable. Now, that's the thing that does concern me, because if people are feeling uncomfortable, that that isn't necessarily empowering, is it? No. And, and, and of course they may well have attributed the discomfort to me. Mm. You know, that I caused it. Okay, but you've also got to read your audience. You've got to be working in a space that is appropriate to your group. Yeah, no, I get that. And I I take your point about facilitating learning because, you know, we were talking before about pointing to the source of learning and it's always inside the learner. Um, I, I think there's a tension. Between, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I am all everything I say in any context is triggering people's uh, search for their own experience. Yeah, you know, and, and that can be a really positive way of facilitating because if they can emotion, you know, you fix a sort of emotional tag on something that you've said, then that's going to stay with them and be possibly quite helpful. Yeah, potentially. But no, I take your point. It's attention. Mm, and, it is, isn't uh, it? Yeah, it is. It's a dance in a way. Mm. But, you know, there you go. Thank you, Joe. That was a super question. We've reached the end of our questions. So I'm wow. going to say thank you to Vicky, Jenny, Bex, Joe, Sue and Sinead for sending them in. And we will get T-shirts to you and we'll sort that out in the next few weeks. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been really interesting to think about them. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we're wishing everyone a very Merry Christmas, aren't we? And whatever else you might be celebrating. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Whatever. And, of course, you may even be listening to this on Christmas morning. That depends if Martin presses the button or not. You might be listening to it in the summer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean he would take six months to press the button. Just that some people don't. (laughs) listen on the day some people no, unbelievably do not listen on the day that it comes out could yeah, you stop. Oh, i don't know what that's about stop digging stop digging <laughs> would you like to go back to the script is that all we've got time for today i think so so let us know what you think on facebook or twitter uh, i've certainly been very self-expressed today so if you have a, a strong opinion one way or another based on the stuff that we said today we'd love to hear from you um, so that's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, we'd love a review. And don't forget to check out Patreon. Um, thank you very much for listening. Have a lovely rest of the day. Goodbye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. 
The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.